coming up on Philosophy Talk. I think we have to understand war as an historically changing human institution. Does fighting a war require demonizing the enemy? Who is the enemy? Everyone keeps asking. Where and who is the enemy? Isn't the enemy just a construction of the government and the media? Nations don't come as unified wholes anymore. Nations are internally heterogeneous. They have shifting boundaries. I mean, I'm not sure the enemy is a single character or a single nation. War, sacrifice, and the media. Our guest is Judith Butler, author of Frames of War, When is Life Grievable? Do I only grieve for those who are recognizably like me? Or can I also grieve for those who are in some ways not like me, who I've never met, whose names I don't even have? Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. War, Sacrifice, and the Media. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we've taken Philosophy Talk just down the road. We're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Marsh, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Folks, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is war, sacrifice, and the media. Ken, you know, whenever America's involved in a war in a distant land, at the same time, we're involved in another war closer to home. And the second war isn't fought with tanks or bombs or missiles, but with ideas, words, and images. You're thinking of the struggle over the narration and representation of war, its meaning, its cost and benefits, its victors and vanquished, its combatants and non-combatants. You know, he or she who controls the narration and representation of war, controls the public perception of war. Well, Ken, I've been through a lot of wars. World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and all these wars we've been having recently. And I think it's pretty obvious who controls what is represented and how it's represented, and that's the elites. The political elites, the moneyed elites, the media elites. The war comes at us through a top-down system of politically, economically, and culturally conditioned representations that are designed to make us feel sympathy for our own side and antipathy, indifference, hate. You're probably right about that, but the so-called elites, uh, of which you and I are card-carrying members, by the way, yeah. uh, doesn't always speak with a unified voice. And top-down efforts to control thought and manipulate sympathy through mass representations uh, hardly ever succeeds, at least not in a fractious and boisterous democracy like ours, and at least not in the long run. Well, a long run can be pretty long. I mean, eventually McNamara dies and things return to normal, but it takes quite a while. Maybe in the age of the internet, things can happen a little bit quicker. People do have access to alternative sources of information that offer a different take on things. Even the most repressive and controlling regimes can't keep competing narratives completely out of the public square. You're certainly right about that. Think of those brave Iranian students tweeting on the barricades. Still, it would be a serious mistake to underestimate them, the power of the top-down narration. Remember the early days of the Afghanistan war and then the Iraq war. The so-called mainstream media, even the New York Times, bent over backwards to tell the story of the war in terms pretty much dictated by the administration military. It was disgusting. There were dissenting voices, but they were pushed pretty far off stage. 
you're right, but th there's a deeper question. I mean, we talked about different narratives, but here's a question. Are, are different narratives, are they just different, or is it possible for one to be true and the other to be false? And, and how do we go about determining, how do we citizens go about determining which is true and which is false? And, and who should determine what gets represented and how it gets represented? Well, can of course the narratives can be true or false, more, at least more true to the facts and less true to the facts. For example, a narrative of the Iraq war that focuses only on the casualties on our side and leaves out the death and displacement we impose on the innocent citizens of that poor country is incomplete and untrue to the facts. Can you have any question about that? Well, well no, but you know, there is this thing. Our narratives are bound to be incomplete. You know, because they're always constructed from a particular and partisan point of view. It's just a fact that in war, it's just a fact. The lives of enemy combatants count less than the lives of our own soldiers. And it follows from that fact that our narratives of war are bound to privilege the lives and losses of our own and de-emphasize, de-privilege, if you will, the lives and losses of the distant other. Well, it may be a fact, but it's not a good fact. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing if we're blind to the common humanity we share with our adversaries. It's a human thing. We're sort of biologically programmed, I think, to, to care more about those who are near and dear and less about the distant other. But biology is not destiny. Whatever we're biologically programmed to do, morally we ought to care about human beings wherever they are, all equally. That sounds nice, John, but where, where would such odds come from? I mean, if it's really true that humans are hardwired to care more about the near and dear than the distant other, I mean, is it even possible to, for us to treat all humans everywhere as equally worthy of respect and sympathy? I mean, if, and if it's not possible, what makes it the case that we ought to do that? Well, if, if the reach of human sympathy was just a product of unaided biology, we, we probably couldn't have sympathy beyond the bounds of our family or our, or our local tribes. Some progress has been made. It's also shaped by culture, society, and politics. And in the right sort of political, social, cultural context, we could have equal regard for the lives of innocent victims of war everywhere. Again, that sounds really nice, and I hope you're right. But, you know, it's hard to imagine, I, I confess, how we get from where we are to where you think we ought to be. Well, we're going to be joined by someone who can help us figure that out. Our guest is Judith Butler. She's the author of Frames of War, When is Life Grievable? She'll help us to understand the complex social and political dynamics that shape our dehumanizing representation and narration of war. She'll also help us to imagine how more humanizing narratives might be accepted by the public. We also want help from our live audience here at the Marsh Theater. Get ready to join the conversation by stepping up to the microphones a little bit later in the program, folks. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Rena Palta, talks to a refugee from Iraq about life during wartime. She files this report. Suad Hussein grew up in Baghdad. I was like a um, uh, regular citizenship, doing whatever to get a living. I was work a um, maintenance uh, uh, garage for cars like washing cars, change oil, something like that. It's like for five or seven years before the war. On March 20th, 2003, American armed forces advanced into Iraq. And in a little over two weeks, ground and air troops had reached Baghdad. The sound of battles and bombing is now coming from all directions. 
There are now no exit routes for escape. And with the blanket and smoke and the sandstorms, this just adds uh, to the terror. There's no way to communicate with family and friends to find out if they're okay since the phones are out. You can't see anything. All you can hear is this constant thud, thud, thud. When the war started, nobody able to go to work. Well, actually, no movement on the streets, and um, you need to work hard to get the, uh, the money. So you don't have time to mourn or to be happy. You need to get work from uh, all day long. When American troops started settling into Baghdad and occupying old palaces and government buildings, Hussein says they also started hiring. They need to clean whatever was there before. So we went to them and. Uh, uh, they were picking like 40 or 50 people a day. Hussein knew English and got a job translating between soldiers and work crews. He says he loved working for the U.S. Army, but then militias started targeting people like him who worked for the Americans. Hussein says he found notes tacked on his door threatening his family. One time in 2006, Al-Qaeda came to his house. That's when he really started worrying. I can't let my daughter to go to school over there because if somebody knows that is my daughter, Maybe she's going to be kidnapped. That's, you know, to, uh, just to hurt me. In 2009, Hussein moved his wife and two daughters to Oakland, part of a special program for Iraqi employees of the U.S. Armed Forces. He says the best part, besides getting his daughter back in school, is not having to worry about the latest news. I just want to get off from the news for a little while. Because you're in Baghdad, you need to watch the news. Because, you know, tomorrow is like curfew. Tomorrow is uh, that's road blocked, that road closed, you know, militias, uh, vivids, like uh, car bombs, whatever. So you got a headache from the news. So when you go out in, from Baghdad, even if you go like to Jordan, Syria, you want to forget about it. That's it. Um, I have had it, you know. Suad Hussein's been through a lot since the war started, but that's not the message he wants to send to Americans. I want them to know that, I mean, their sons did a great job over there. For me, I'm very thankful for them. Not because I'm here, but at least uh, they release us from the other regime. But now maybe we got our own opinion, we got our own elections, you know, some uh, big difference. So i just trying to thank them. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Rina Palta. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.